0: this is my journey inspired one story at a time a library of leaders was created it began as a journey to learn as time went on it began to grow all it needed was a platform and this podcast was created to listen to inspire to share i am a storyteller and this is my journey Welcome to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. I'm your host, Steve Anderson, and today's guest is Rachel Ryder. She founded MetaWorks in 2015 after a distinguished career in HR, receiving executive coaching certification from Columbia University and extensive training in meditation, somatic experiencing, and polarity therapy. Starting as an HR business partner responsible for developing and coaching leaders and teams at Bloomberg, She went on to specialize in leadership coaching at AppNexus and DigitalOcean, the third largest hosting company in the world. Ryder completed a three-year intensive certification in somatic experiencing in 2018 and a 2020 training in polarity therapy with the aim of bringing leaders tools to unlock effective, long-lasting change in concert with their body. Rachel lives in New York with her husband and two children. You know, in this discussion, you'll hear that Rachel has taken a really deep dive into who she is and, and feels that this has really helped her um, working with other leaders to learn to communicate and lead more effectively. We had a great discussion today about knowing yourself and, and knowing um, those who you work with to, to better understand what language to use when, so that your mes- messaging resonates with those on your team. She uses great real-life stories, as you'll hear, to illustrate her points. She kind of has like a Zen approach to leadership training and emphasizes knowing your why, understanding your survival mechanisms, patterns of habits, and, and just owning your own behavior. It was a great discussion, great insight, a very interesting approach uh, that has been very successful and meaningful to her clients. She is also the author of the book, Who You Are?, is how you lead. And so let's just jump right into the discussion with Rachel and uh, see what we can learn from her today. Rachel, welcome to the program. It's great to have you today.
1: Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here.
0: So let's just start off by telling us a little bit. uh, I know you're uh, an executive coach. Uh, uh, You've um, worked in the uh, HR world a little bit. So uh, kind of just tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you got to where you are today.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. I will try to not tell you the, fir- the full the length of the journey. It's a long one. Now. <laughs> okay, well, that's fine. But but yeah. So I started my career in house as an HR professional, and um, really, it was it was about fifteen years ago now when. Um, layoffs were not happening in the tens of thousands (laughs) these days when I tell this story you know people aren't that shocked but at the time I was in charge of um terminating 100 people globally and it really made me question where what I was doing and what I wanted my role to be and at that time we also did it um in person these days you get locked out of your computer which is just you know shocking but at that yeah right. <laughs> At that time, um in the world, sitting in the room with someone was the humane thing to do, but also of course, very painful. And so, after being in charge and responsible of overseeing that um large termination, I really reassessed what it was I loved about my work and and who I was working with, and I really found that I loved working with leaders in their interpersonal world. And so over the course, I would say probably about five years, I moved into leadership development in-house. I built an in-house coaching program for leaders at various tech companies, and it became clear that really my heart lay in running my own company. And so um, over the course of that time, too, I got very clear about what it was that I really was good at and also passionate about in terms of the specific leadership coaching that I do. And um, it's truly based on the interpersonal communication and the premise of the work that I do at MetaWorks is that the only way to be effective in um, your interpersonal communication as a leader is to understand your own inner world and how to navigate it so you can show up honoring who you are, but also connecting with others and fostering trust And um, speaking to hearts and minds, so um, that's that's the that's the shortest version I could come up with.
0: (laughs) Okay, and so now your your company MetaWorks is uh, an executive coaching company, and you have um, clients at the C level as well as working with teams and and throughout the organization. Is that correct? That
1: is correct.
0: Yeah. So getting back to that, uh, uh, by the way, I should mention that uh, you you are an author of a book called "Who You Are Is How You Lead." And in that book, you describe that horrific time a little bit where you had to fire mm. 25% of the workforce. And and um, gosh, what? How, how'd you get that job? That's like, that's the worst job ever. So <laughs> when you fly around and basically tell people they have to leave, you know, you, you said that you learned that you like to work with leaders, but what did you learn about that process that uh, mm. helps you um, lead people better today?
1: Mm. Yeah, that's such a great question. And, and I, it's funny because that was only part of the job. So, yes, it's a great question. That became my responsibility. Um, another story in and of itself, but um, because one of the executives was not taking responsibility themselves. Um, but it, in response to the the heart of your question, which is what really came up for me is the pearls of wisdom within that process was a couple of things. During the time that I was doing this, um, it became clear that my values no longer were in alignment with the company's values. And I I was in, you know, I, I was younger in my career. I relied on the paycheck. I was also very highly thought about the company and making my way. And so I, I wasn't in the moment felt in a position where I could leave the company or well, I wasn't clear if I wanted to yet. And so as I grappled with that, I felt really conflicted and disempowered in terms of how could i take ownership over this action that didn't feel like mine didn't feel like something i agreed with and so one of the ways in which i found i could find my own ground within it was to invoke my own spiritual practice i have been a buddhist practitioner for a very long time and so what i did is i did three bows for It's still emotional for me when I talk about this. (laughs) Um, I did three bows for each person who I was responsible for terminating and uh, wishing that their life went well because I am a true believer in karma and I knew I was creating karma around these people's lives.
0: It's almost an impossible position to be in. I mean... You know, we've all had to let people go, and, and that's one thing. But you, uh, you know, day after day, um, month after month, having to do it must have just been um, really traumatic. And, and as you said, you're still emotional about it today. I can certainly see why.
1: Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, there were other aspects of my role, it wasn't just terminations, but yes, that was a big one. And I appreciate that. And, um, and so that's where, you know, I really appreciate also the term you used impossible situations. It's one of the the other um kind of grains that came out for me from that that experience is understanding what what makes a situation impossible, and it's usually because we are pulled inside in many different directions that immobilizes us from action. And what I found through even my own spiritual kind of leaning into my own spiritual practice and later deciding it was time for me to leave and really. Um, kind of lean into the leadership development aspect, it, it it was that was where the um the seeds started to be planted about understanding what created impossible situations and why. And the premise of my work at Meadowworks, uh, myself as a coach and I have a coach who works for me, is that the impossible situations are impossible because of the inner conflicts within us. Once we get clear, on what the conflict is and then come from clear away old baggage and just honor our our inner wisdom, that impossible situation becomes less impossible and clearer to move forward. And, and I think that that's one of the, the gems of wisdom I really took from that beginning transformation for me in my career.
0: Well, it's, it's very interesting to me because as an executive coach myself and in a person who believes in really communicating well with others, I I do think you have to understand yourself first uh, really well before you can get into that realm. But I mean, in reading the book, you, you just have done a a tremendous amount of soul searching and digging Mm -hmm. deep and doing all that. And, and, and you mentioned it earlier that started meditating at age 13. So (laughs) uh, that's, that's unusual uh, to to say the least. But I think it was, as you described it, kind of a survival mechanism as well, that, mm. you know, that's just something that you were uh, put in a position where, you know, it, it, it was tough to figure things out. So that was a way to uh, to, to make it through that time. So uh, just tell us a little bit about, um, you know, you started meditating and, and what you think it does for you. Mm.
1: Yeah, it's funny because, um, first of all, I appreciate that call out about the amount of work I've done on myself. I, I joke, you know, I, I am the product. And so in my mind, I need to work on myself. It's just an ongoing process to, you know, finesse the, the product that we offer here at MetaWorks. Um, and and it's also my passion. It's, I really. My husband jokes that I don't have any hobbies. But I, <laughs> my hobby is working on myself. Um, but but you know that includes my meditation practice and um, other aspects of my spiritual practice and my therapy and energy work. So yes, it's for me. It's it's where my passion lies. And I I do wonder about um, you know what we come in with because when I think about. Being 13 years old and 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 actually asking my family um, for more religion in my life, I feel like that comes from 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 birth. Like I, because it, it doesn't make sense to me that this was something I was drawn to. Because at the time, my family, my mother um, comes from a very Jewish family. We would go for Shabbat dinners. My father was an altar boy. In the church, in um, the oldest of seven, you know, birth control wasn't allowed. So, and then my parents met at a Buddhist monastery. So there was a lot of religiosity <laughs> in our house, but very little um, rules. You know, we were exposed to everything. And around, I think it might have started at 11, actually, I was saying, hey, you know, I really want my, I, I, want, I want us to, I want me, to, I want to commit to a community. And they were like, all right check it out, take your pick. And um, Buddhism really resonated with me, I think, from the beginning, because of the premise that it is all within you. There's nothing without. And I actually do think that most religions say that, you know, God is that, um, but it's not as explicit as Buddhism. And so that's what really resonated for me. And then when I got on the cushion, it was like such a relief it was like oh okay this is it if i just have to sit here and engage with my own mind and watch the storms within me that means i have the power to change it and so i think meditation practice has always been incredibly empowering for me because it's like it, it it's not all i was just going to say all i have to do is sit um, which actually is incredibly difficult <laughs> Um, but it's also really a relief. It's like, that's all I mean. I just need to get on the cushion. I just need to look at my own mind and get to the root of the crazy so I can let it go.
0: I think there's a lot, you know, we all are starting to appreciate much more in Western society uh, as far as the mindfulness and, um, you know, uh, trying to find the silence. Um, you know, one of my earlier podcasts, we, they I talked to two people who wrote a book called Silence, and it's just trying mm. to find, you know, in this crazy, chaotic world with so much information, so much noise going on all the time, that how do you find silence? And then, you know, I think we can mm. all agree that finding some silence is beneficial to slow down the, the, the craziness, as you said. So, um, yeah, I, I just admire that uh, you've been practicing that a long time. So it's, it, it, it's impressive.
1: Thank you, and I, I just want to normalize. It, it doesn't get easier,
0: <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. It's
1: like, it's like when the silence happens. That's when the storms really show.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Like you put down your phone, you 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 know, you stop um, talking to your husband or engaging with your kids, and you're alone by yourself. And then all you get to watch is the to-do list and the. Or this is me, not you. But you know, all I get to watch is the to-do list and the anxiety about what I just did or what I'm about to do. And, and, and just, yeah, the, the, the vitality of the silence is that it allows me to see the crazy so that hopefully, I get to see the quiet underneath and say, Oh, right, this, this is what's true. So I can let go of the the chaos in the silence.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. You know, in your book, you talk about, you know, being a leader is, is not getting those tasks done that, that you know a lot mm. of us think we need to do, but it's really attending to your relationships. I like the way you put that because really, you know, a good leader, that's a lot of what they do is tending to relationships.
1: Yes. It's it's so interesting. You know, I work with the most upper echelons of companies. And I like to say that leadership 101 it never changes at the most senior levels. It just gets harder to leverage. You know, everyone knows delegation and communication and giving feedback is important. When we get to the highest echelons of an organization, those become fundamental to your success. But instead of thinking about, you know, effective communication or delegation, it just feels like very sophisticated, very complicated issues. And so what's so so rewarding to me is consistently seeing my leaders get it on a experiential level instead of just an un- a cognitive level you know it's different at the cognitive level you can understand right this is important i need to communicate differently i need to pay attention to the relationship more than the okr or the kpis and then when the penny drops with a leader i'm coaching and they're like oh this is a game changer like let me get curious about why my c r o consistently hasn't done what i asked instead of just becoming critical or angry or overwhelmed like what if i said hey what's going on what are how are things working for you you know it's a completely different conversation and the power of the interpersonal at, at any level but at the most senior levels of an organization is so important to success. So I really appreciate you calling it
0: out. Yeah. And I think you mentioned in the book as well that, you know, that, that becoming uh, improving your mastery of that interpersonal skills is really what is rewarded in a leader. Um, you know, it will de- de- determine your success or failure as a leader. So it's not so much, uh, you know, this much profit or these tasks done or whatever. It's, it's how have I mastered that interpersonal skills to, uh, leverage the uh you know the leadership team and really the whole company
1: exactly exactly i you know there's so many clients that i i talk about in the book and one of my favorites is suny because she was such um such a poster child for this work because she came in um and ta- i talk about this in the book that her um co-founder actually they've been they were have been best friends for almost their entire life said you need a coach because no one wanted to speak to SUNY. They were working around Suni, um and trying to speak to the co-founder and the co founders the CEO as they were growing their, their $200 million um, company. And, and the CEO was like, I can't do this anymore. And SUNY is this great example of someone who had, has very high expectations. She would walk into, I mean, she's, a powerful player. She's a remarkable leader. And she scared everybody because she would walk into a room and say, yeah, that's great. And so what are we doing here differently? How are we going to bring this to the next level? And the problem is is where she was trying to say, how are we going to bring this to the next level? Everybody heard you're doing a terrible job. And, and what was so interesting in my work with her and ongoing, her and I still work together is that she was kind of like, I don't understand. I'm just trying to make us great. Like, doesn't everybody want to work at this great company? And, um, and the work together with us has been her reading the room and really seeing the power of her relationships because the kicker is she is a phenomenal sales person. I mean, she's the one who got them to where they were because of the deal she was closing. And one of the, The pieces that we worked on was helping her see what makes you so good in sales that isn't translating to when you come work with your team. Because in sales, she would see the individual she was speaking to. She would understand what was driving them, what was important to them. The moment we were able to help her see, oh, I can translate that skill over to my people and treat my people like I see them, I understand what's important, everything changed. And and power of that relationship, it, it changes the whole model of the organization. People were writing feedback about the work we had done, and they were like, I don't know what you did with SUNY, but please don't let the old SUNY come back. Like, she is a different person. And it's so cool to see these concrete examples of, you know, how powerful attending to a relationship can be.
0: And I think what I hear in your story there as well is that, you know you've got to take uh into consideration the different personality types and that direct mm-hmm. in your face you know might uh, uh, apply to 25% of the uh, of your working force but the other 75% you know it's 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 a, it's offensive or they build up a wall or they do whatever so you have to figure out a way to ask the question yeah. the same way but with different language that so resonates with those people yeah
1: Yeah. And that's the thing that I think makes the work really interesting and sophisticated is how do you do that while still honoring yourself? That's something actually Sunny and I continue to talk about is because she wants to show up as her authentic self as a leader. In fact, you're a better leader when you do that, right? And you still need to know who you're in the room with. How are you changing your message differently? And actually, This is um, she's such a great example of what you're talking about, because one of the pieces we actually recently had a conversation about where she she's changed so much. And and still, listen, we old habits die hard. She's when she's in a very when she's in a high pressured position, she reverts back to old behaviors. and, And it happened recently. And I said, Sumi, what what was the actual like, what were you actually trying to to have the person feel? When you said, um, "You know, great job," it wasn't your best work, and, <laughs> and she was like, "I was trying, I was trying to say, great job," and I was like, "Okay, so what I hear on the receiving end of it wasn't your best work is that I failed," and she's like, "No, I was just trying to say, like, okay, let's tap what the best work is and translate that over," and I was like, "Okay, so your energy." around what you were explaining to me is totally different from the energy around great job, but it, and it wasn't her best work. And and so the pieces that, the, the, where the work gets really fascinating is understand the layers underneath that you're really trying to access so that you can honor still who she, who she is. She really meant to say it was a great job. And she also wanted to help this power player go to the next level. And so how do we help her do that? in a way where that person can hear it. That's where it becomes so interesting to
0: yeah, me. It's so true. I mean, uh you know, we, we've seen study after study that the people, you know, 98% of a performance review or a discussion or something will be about how wonderful you are and then you come up with the one thing that, you know, <laughs> You could be better at, or you, you could do better. Um, and the person goes home and tells their spouse that one negative thing right. was brought up. You know, so
1: exactly.
0: Yeah, so we just have to be careful of that I, I read a book just recently that was fascinating relating to this. Is that um, I won't bog down in the details too much, but it's about a Russian spy who actually mm-hmm. um, uh, was converted uh, uh, to work for England. And so this is during the Margaret Thatcher days. And so Margaret Thatcher thought that when she talked to the Russian um, president and leadership, that she had to be, you know, they called her Iron Woman. She had to be, you know, in their face and very strong and just, you know, go after it. And the Russian spy said, look, you you don't talk to Russian men in power that way. Here's Mm. how you should approach it. Here's how you should do it. And she listened to him. And from then on, they were able to communicate in a very um, meaningful way. But it was like having that perspective of how they take Mm -hmm. things in in the way that they take it that you have to be aware of. You can't just, you know, think you have to be tough all the time. Sometimes you have to do it in a different way. So I think that's what you're saying.
1: Yeah, knowing your audience and still being able
0: to honor who you are. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I was uh, working with uh, teaching a leadership class once, and I asked people uh, in the class, you know, what is your what kind of a leader do you admire the most? And the kind of the mm-hmm. majority of the group said, oh, I love the leader that comes in and rolls up their sleeves and sits down with us and helps us do the work. And, you know, it's just part of us, you know. And I sat there mm-hmm. and I thought of that for a while. And I said, yeah, I get that. But is that really what the leader should be doing? Right. You know, because the the leader should be, uh, you know, again, on the relationship side, as we talked about earlier and doing things that, aren't always the task oriented things, even though um, the people perceive that as, as being one of us. And so, again, I think perspective is everything.
1: Yeah, you know, it's such an interesting point, because the thought I would have in response to that is, I bet you, the really good leaders are the ones that make folks feel like, listen, they're in the trenches with them, but they're actually operating at the appropriate level. You know, I think that's, that's, that's the secret sauce is where folks feel like the leader is with them. The leader cares, the sleeves are rolled up, but at their level of, okay, folks, tell me your concerns. Let me think about this at the most highest level. Um, I feel like wh- one of the things, I feel like one of the threads that we're talking about here is helping people feel seen and heard. You know, even in disagreement, that's that's what's so astonishing to me over and over again, that folks don't necessarily need to be agreed with if they feel like their voice matters, if they feel like they're cared for. A story I love to tell about this is, um, you know, when I was in my HR days and in charge of one of the many aspects of my role was terminations of employees. Um, I had, a, I was, you know, in the room firing an employee and he turned to me and he said, thank you, Rachel. I'm glad it was you. Yeah. And I was I was floored. And it was because we tr- I treated him like a human. And so I feel like what you're talking about, I think that's what the folks in the room were probably saying but didn't have the language for, which was we want to feel like this leader has our back and understands us and listens to our voices, whether or not that leader decides to act on it might be a different story because they have a different perspective, but it, but that's what I think the, the secret sauce is. And that's really what I feel like we're talking about here is helping folks feel seen and heard, even if it's not, you know, the last
0: decider. Yeah, exactly. You know, you also talk in the book that it's important to understand your drivers so that you can ensure mm-hmm. that your behavior um, aligns with your intentions. So explain that a little bit deeper for us.
1: Yeah, I love that story too. That's a good story that in the book we talk about, and I guess I'll give away the punchline here, but it's such a good one. I, um, I had a client, um, we called her Yutunde in the book and she, um, she really, her life was saved by tech in terms of it's the way she had access to, um, to build a life for herself. Um, here in the United States. And so it was really important that her mission in her company was to be able to provide access um, for folks within the company to grow their lives and careers within the company so they could be senior leaders in the um, company itself. And the board was really at odds with Yatende about... (sighs) hiring external leaders. They were growing exponentially, which is always a gift. And yet, you know, the folks they had in-house weren't well-equipped enough to um, set the strategy at a certain level, um, given the pace that the company was growing. And Nutendi was just locking horns with the board because she was saying, this is literally in conflict with what is so important to me. And through our conversations, and this is, again, I think, a a foundational piece of the coaching that I do, which is this idea of both and, you know, it's like the growth mindset um, versus the yes or no. Um, And so throughout our conversations, Yutande and I came back to, okay, what was important to her about this company? Because she was at the place where she was like, do I walk away? Just completely disagree with the board here. And the foundational piece of the company for her was that it create access to resources for anyone who wants it and that she wanted to set that example within her company. And she, when she really had space to reflect, she did agree that if she wanted to grow the company, she did need a certain level of senior leadership in her organization to help out while her other folks could grow. And what was so cool through our conversation of her understanding what was most important to her, she did want this company to thrive and she really wanted this company to be a pipeline of opportunity for folks within the company. She came up with a strategy. And the only way she could have done that was coming back to what was most important to her, which was access. She wanted this company to provide access within. And so she came to the board and she said, listen, I hear you. I am open to hiring the first two senior roles externally if we can agree that we are dedicated to a pipeline that we create within the company for certain roles of leadership at the executive level, and that we will invest in that pipeline for our leaders internally. And the board was like, yeah, that's great. That aligns with our mission. And it was such a beautiful example about how powerful coming back to your why is to help you make that decision. It's like what we we're talking about in possible situations. Usually impossible situations exist because we are conflicted with our inner why. And so the clearer we get on what's important, the easier it is to make a decision to move forward from
0: Absolutely. in honoring
1: the most important why, yeah.
0: Absolutely. You also mentioned that uh, if you notice that the words uh, always or never are in your thoughts. Mm. It's pretty much a guarantee that, uh, uh that they're false, not the right yes. narrative to have. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. It's an untrue narrative. It's a, it's the narrative of extremes. It's that either or narrative. There's no other room for anything else. If it's always or never, it keeps you from that both and mindset because if it's sometimes then there's like, okay, well, if that, if sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. When is it? When isn't it? When should I? When do I not want to? There's so much more room for brainstorming, versus when we say always or never, it immediately cuts us off to the options available to us in the moment.
0: And I think in the story you shared just uh, just before that, uh, you know, it's also once you own your behavior. You know, you can powerfully Mm -hmm. lead the people around you. And I think, you know, sometimes I see people that are not willing to own their behavior, you know, admit that, you know, uh, that wasn't right. Or it could have been done in a different way or or even apologize for, for their behavior.
1: Yes. Yes. And, you know, this is what I would say. Unfortunately, I see that all the time. The folks who are in coaching, I like to think there's an in. Even if they're not owning their behavior, there is an open door because they have decided to be in the coaching, whether a company has nominated them or not, they're showing up to the session. They don't have to show up. I'm telling you, I've seen clients completely blowing off. Those folks probably aren't interested. But for folks who are pointing the finger and saying it's everybody else's fault or or unapologetic and not self-reflective and they're in coaching with me, I see that as a survival mechanism. I see that as an opportunity for someone for me to say, Hey, how do you think that's taking care of you right now? Making it about everybody else.
0: Yeah, that's that's a great way to look at it.
1: And it and it stops them in their tracks. And and if they're open, they might explore it a little more. Oh well, you know, it's easier. Or then I don't have to own that I made a mistake. And the vulnerability. Within that, of acknowledging the mistake is where we have access to change. Okay, let's understand what's so scary about owning, like, yeah, you screwed up.
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of leaders, uh, you know, the this kind of gets back to the imposter syndrome or whatever. It's kind of like they they think that they should know all the answers, and so when they do Mm -hmm. make a mistake, it's hard to admit. Where in reality... Uh, the people that are on their teams that, that are being led by them actually appreciate it. They actually say, yeah. Oh, that person is human. That that person mm-hmm. does do, you know, so it's, it's, it's actually one of those. Uh, uh, we think it's one way and it's actually the opposite.
1: It's funny. I like to talk a lot about that, actually, that, um, you know, the rupture is never the starting point or end point. It's the repair. And the better you repair even as a severe rupture the stronger your relationships are with the people in the organization you know i love to say that the best part and worst part about relationships is they're ongoing
0: <laughs> that's for sure you that's will most
1: sure. likely make, right you will most likely make a mistake in this moment or you'll most likely have to have another you know difficult conversation in the next so you screw it up now you can repair it again And that's the piece where there's so much opportunity and richness of repair to say, Ooh, my bad guys. And let me tell you why it was my bad. I was anxious myself about this. I had a client once we'd been working together a while. Oh, I think, yeah, he's in the book um, where he CEO reaches out like five levels below him about something to an individual contributor And just as I say that, I mean, imagine the anxiety of the individual contributor receiving (laughs) a Slack message from the CEO about a client issue. Um, Just the anxiety, right, first of all. And then second of all, the CEO is so far removed from this. And so what proceeds, and and this was the CEO had been working on this actually and had been doing such a good job. And so what was so cool about the situation is that leadership within the company felt comfortable enough to give him the feedback because he had been working on it because he was transparent about it and one of his direct reports was like hey that wasn't cool man let me tell you why and the ceo was able to be like oh shoot oh i'm sorry and what really there were so many good signs about this and that's what i really want to drive home too is like we we will continue to make mistakes habitual patterns are old and deep and they can change. And it gets better the clearer you are around it, the more transparent you are around it. And the more you circle back and apologize. And not only did he apologize, he acknowledged why he had done it. He was really anxious about this particular deal. He had his own control issues around it. And there was a lack of infrastructure around it to notify him. And so that's where there's so much richness an opportunity for repair, not only to make sure that you can own the mistake and folks around you see that you're human, but there's also an opportunity for a discussion of how to make the process better. There's an opportunity for folks to understand what you're working on so they can give you feedback about it later. There's just so much more opportunity when you screw up (laughs)
0: that's for sure that's well it's you know the old saying we learn more from our failures and our successes so indeed yeah yeah, it's so true you know I was fascinated to hear your story uh that I just thought it was really um interesting how you as a teenager uh realized that you were great at performing I think that's the word you use performing and when we think about our authentic self when you were kind of then challenged to be your authentic self you just froze And Mm -hmm. so I I think that was a fascinating story that, um, yeah, are we performing or are we coming from our authentic self? And those are probably two very different things.
1: Yeah. Thank you. I, it's funny because, um, as I was writing this book that, you know, I haven't thought about that for so long and it appeared to me and I was like, Oh my God, like how, 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 this is such a beautiful example of that. And so, um, yeah. So just to share with folks who haven't read the book, um, yet, when I was, I think I was about 16, um, there was stuff going on in my life where um, it became apparent, my mother is a a psychologist, and so it became apparent that maybe I would benefit from going to therapy, and so, of course, she had a wide network of therapists and sent me to only the best, and um, I was actually with him for, I don't know if I say this in the book, I think I was with him for 17 years, so, <laughs> yeah, can you imagine, and this is how we started, and so. The first session I had with him, you know, I was sharing why why I thought I was there and what was going on. And at the end of the session, you know, a very renowned psychoanalyst at the time um said, you know, you're you're delightful. And it really got me and and kind of put me off because it was confusing. I I I, I at first I was like, thank you, nailed it first therapy session down I crushed it (laughs) and then it was also confusing to me because I was like wait I don't I don't I'm not here to be delightful what and so I and I didn't have language for it in the moment and so I came back the following week I didn't even take my coat off and actually I, (laughs) I I wore my coat on for entire sessions for the first six months I think um, and I think this is kind of connected because, and I sat silently for forty five minutes. Um, and he sat there silently with me to his credit, and right at the end of the session, started asking me what was going on and made an observation about our previous session and how maybe what he said had affected me. And in that moment, yeah, it was like a penny dropped. It was like, yeah, who am I? If I show up to my first therapy session and I'm delightful, what am I doing this for? And and if I show up to my first therapy session delightful, how do I show up as myself? I literally felt immobilized. What, what did it mean for me to speak for my own self when it feels like all I'm doing is doing it for other people?
0: Yeah, that's that's a, it's a very powerful story.
1: Yeah. And I'll tell you, it was. To this day, it is one of the threads that I consistently work on. Is who am I dreaming for?
0: That's yeah. An
1: important
0: one. Need to be clear on that. That's for sure. Yeah. You know, another thing you said in the book too, I thought was interesting, was that patterns are the output of our resistance. So mm-hmm. if we can identify those patterns, you know, I would assume if there are negative patterns, you could, you could ask yourself, what should I stop doing?
1: Mm. This is, I, I think, one of the most revealing pieces to our inner world. The patterns that we use to hide what's really going on. And I feel like, you know, if we're going to use the example of me being delightful and me performing, it's a great example. I I can't remember if this is the example I used in the patterns chapter of myself, but this just constant over-accommodating, taking care of others, attending to others' needs. Um, And I was doing it so much I I can't remember if this is this chapter, but in the book I talk about my husband had decided he was going to cook just a beautiful Thanksgiving dinner. Um, after I was postpartum, I think it was a month with my second son. And like, he spent six hours in the kitchen. He's a phenomenal cook and he was making duck. It was just stunning. Um, but that meant he was out of commission, but we did have four or five other adults in the house at the time, um, a month postpartum and I am up taking care of both children. and. I have a heart arrhythmia and I am recovering from a cesarean section. And it's like, what, what world does this make sense? And this is such, it's such a blatant pattern for me of over-accommodating others. And so what's so amazing is that it, I still continue to have to identify it for myself. After all this extensive work and to notice the power isn't just in the identification. That's really important to know it exists. But the power is when you try to stop, not even change, don't change the behavior yet, but just disrupt it and see what is the belief system? What is the visceral response that comes up when you do so? And for me, it's not good enough. You're only worthy if someone else thinks, if you're doing, if you're meeting everybody else's needs and that's the piece that needs attending to, but we can only, that only reveals itself once we try to disrupt the pattern. Cause the pattern's so good at hiding that inner dialogue. Cause I'm, cause I'm taking care of everyone else. There's no room for me to feel inadequate. It's solving the problem.
0: Yeah. That's, that's really a, uh an eye opener for sure and i think a lot of people would fall into that category so very interesting i just um read a book uh that that was fascinating i highly recommend it uh, written by bono about his life oh really and uh huh. and the guy is you know i mean you know not only is he you know the lead singer of you know a major rock group for decades and He's saving the world with all his activism, and now he's, he's an author, and the way he writes is like poetry. <laughs> it's like ridiculous. So cool. But he had, like this, he had this great um, quote that I, I just, when you're saying what you're just saying, made me think of it, which is he said, Wisdom is the return of innocence at the end mm. of experience. Isn't, mm. that, isn't that brilliant? I don't know if if he stole That's it from so somebody or he just made it up but I, th- I I just kept going over and over in my head that that is so true because you know when we're innocent, you know, things just happen and come out and and when we lose that innocence, we overthink things. We uh we put uh you know, you know, like you say patterns or survival mechanisms or whatever and all this stuff. But you know, if we can somehow return to that innocence at times, um we can get through um Get through the the junk.
1: You know what? I thank you so much for sharing that. It's so beautiful, and I love the piece about it being at the end of experience because I think the experience piece is so vital for you to then decide. Oh, none of this is going to actually save me. I've done it all. You know, that's one of the 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 themes of the folks I work with is they're at the top of their careers and. They're saying, wait, why can't I enjoy this? Why am I still doing the same stuff I was doing 10 years ago? Or is this it? And I feel like there is no way you can have that, ex- that that thought, that existential crisis until you get there, until you have the experience of getting everything you've always wanted and being like, oh, right, I still got to deal with my own stuff. I still got to, you know clean out the inner world, make space for me. And I feel like that that's so core to what that beautiful quote was that you shared, that you have to have all the experience to realize, yeah, it is just about that inner wisdom, that inner innocence. It's so beautiful. Thank you.
0: Yeah. And you know, you, you also mentioned in the book too, that, you know, we need to have compassion uh, for and accountability to ourselves Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times it's so, you know, looking outward and helping others and, you know, in your story, trying to, you know, be as good as you can and, and, and just, you know, always serving others. But, you know, it, it you know, sometimes people think it's selfish when we look internal too much. But on the other hand, we need to have that compassion uh, for ourselves at times.
1: You know, it's it's funny. And frankly, I don't think I I think it's always I think the only way. I'm going to make a very strong statement, but I think the only way to change is to have compassion for yourself, and and like you use the, the word I use in the book, with accountability, compassion does not mean letting yourself get away with it, it doesn't mean becoming a doormat, it means this, let me give an example, I like to tell my clients, When they are struggling with their inner demons, the ones that they just wish would go away finally, it's time to invite them to tea. It's time to ask how they're doing. It's time to throw them a party. I had a client once who had an explosive temper. Oh man, he was so good at his job, but he also was dangerously, he was a major liability, which is one of the reasons why the company sent him to me. And, um, before we could even contemplate helping him show up differently, we had to really celebrate his anger. How had it taken care of him? How had it gotten him to where he was? And we even had, did this exercise of him visualizing the, the avatar that his anger took. And he talked about it, it being a football player. And throwing his anger, this football player, a surprise party. And it was like the most beautiful, moving thing for my client to see his anger be acknowledged, really taking care of him and protecting him. And the moment we were able to do that, that's when the work began. That's when there was room to say, okay, well, maybe the anger needs in your job. Maybe that was a retirement party. May it, you know, it took care of you and looked out for you made sure your voice was heard in the room how can it get a new job how can it learn new skills and that's the compassionate piece it's not oh I love you you know listen that's good but that's superficial let's really talk about how much this part of you that might have gotten in the way also took care of you because that's the moment there's going to be room for it to change
0: uh, very interesting way to look at it that's for sure You know, and that, you know, as you mentioned, you know, change is messy and it involves a lot of missteps and Mm. it sometimes involves apologies.
1: Yes. Yes, and I really think that the apology is where the fertile ground is. Truly. That's where we have an opportunity to connect on a deeper level. That's where we have an opportunity to actually have trust for one another. That's where if you screw up, even majorly, and you apologize, someone's going to think, all right, because we're always going to screw up. That's going to happen again and again. But the person you apologize to might have your back a little more because they know you care enough to try differently. And if you do it again, you're going to acknowledge it.
0: Absolutely. I love the quote uh, that, that was in the book as well. When you said, it's not that you'll be happy when you're a good leader, it's actually to be a good leader, you need to be happy. Yes. I think people miss that a lot.
1: I know. You know, it's funny because that's where the inner work is so vital. That I really think that's the premise of the title of the book, of who you are is how you lead. You know, uh, when I say who you are, I'm talking about how you're showing up in the moment, your inner world leaking through how you speak, your belief systems that's how you lead. So when you're happy, you lead from a happy place. You lead from a place of ease and clarity and confidence. If you are not that way, you lead from a place of anger, resentment, frustration, overwhelm, and that's what everybody gets from you. And so that's why the premise of our work at MetaWorks is that this is about the inner work at the highest levels of an organization because The way you feel inside is the way you show up as a leader.
0: Well said. Well said. You know, in anticipation of our discussion today, is there anything that I haven't asked you uh, that you definitely want to get in the program?
1: Mm. You know, I like to talk about how we all have birth karma. We're all born in to certain circumstances. With things that may never really heal. It might be the human experience. It might be generations of trauma. And given my own experience, I profoundly believe and have experienced that our relationship to it can change. So that feeling for myself of maybe never being good enough, that might never go away. That's that, that pull to over-accommodate others, might never leave. But my relationship to it changes. I see it for what it is now. I It'll show up and I can be like, oh, I know you. Hi. What are you trying to do for me today? What are you trying to take care of? Because I got this. I think we're good. And I think that's so important for everybody to know that it's not that things disappear, it's that our relationship to them change. And when our relationship to our old habits our unpleasant experiences change, we show up differently. We find that place of deep ease. We can stand in that place of self-expression with comfort and lead from power. And I feel like that's so
0: important. That is really a great way to say it. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's that makes a lot of sense. You know, Rachel, at this time of the interview, I always ask my guests a common question. And that question is, in relationship to uh, leadership, what is a pearl of wisdom that you can leave us with today?
1: The more you know yourself, the more powerful
0: you will be. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Well, Rachel, this has been a real pleasure. Uh your wealth Thank of knowledge, you. uh, you've re- you've written a great book and um you're just a a pleasure to sit and have a discussion with. So appreciate your time Thank today you and really uh, enjoyed it. Sounds like you're doing some great things in the world and helping a lot of people. So good luck with that and continue doing good things. And uh, maybe we'll uh, run into each other down the road.
1: I'd love that. It was such a pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: Okay. Take care, Rachel. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. To listen to all my interviews, subscribe to Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and many other popular podcast platforms. Some of these interviews are on video, and you can search YouTube for Profiles and Leadership with Steve Anderson. You can also access the entire library of interviews on my website, orange.coaching.com, and that is orangetheword.coaching.com, and go to the Media Center and click on Podcasts or Video Gallery. You can also enter the website from pilpodcast.com.